Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, February 23rd, 2015. Still a wee bit tired. It's a whirlwind trip down to Florida and back. And then you had to preach yesterday and we <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, and sadly... There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we actually do play the crazy things here as well as the not-so-crazy. We, we, well, I don't want to say we enjoy, but we put some of the stuff from the lunatic fringe here on Fighting for the Faith for the very reason that uh, what you'll find is is that theological error oftentimes uh, in the more subtle form... um, is more easily readable, uh, readable, more easily spottable. There we go. My brain is not quite functioning right. I'm still a little bit on. I'm tired is a way to put it. But it's it's easily spottable, if you would, more easily spottable. If you learn with something that's well, it's kind of preposterous and weird, and you know, and you sit there and go, why on earth does Roseboro play some of these people? Well, I ironically, um, and this is kind of the fun part. If you attend a church where the pastor is rightly handling God's word, proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins, calling sinners to repent and to be forgiven, chances are, and not necessarily, but chances are you're attending a fairly small congregation. You know, for whatever reason, the uh, the biblical gospel and the call for sinners to repent and to be forgiven is, well, it just doesn't play well in uh, in many places. And as a result of that, chances are you probably attend a smaller church, especially in comparison to the megachurches. The weird part is, is that the people who are out there putting out the kind of the weird stuff out on the lunatic fringe, you'd be surprised at, at just how many followers they have or how large their congregations are compared to your tiny congregation where the pastor is faithfully doing what he's supposed to do. Let's just say that people, for whatever reason, are drawn to the crazy, the lunatic, the mythological, the the ear scratching and all that kind of stuff. 
whereas they are repulsed many times by the shocking absurdity, the scandal of Christ and him crucified for our sins. And so, you know, even though we play some of the stuff on the lunatic fringe, the, you'd be surprised how large of a crowd they're able to draw and people who believe that what they're saying, these people are saying is actually true. Anyway, quick report. Um, the, uh, the My trip down to uh, South Florida was, well, it was fantastic. The uh, Liberate Conference was, you know, this is my first time attending and uh, and actually participating and got to tell you I was somewhat blown away by the uh, by being with a group of people a large group of people from around the country who have similar stories that I have of being broken in churches that where it's all law no gospel preaching or the gospel wasn't applied to Christians it was kind of in the rearview mirror you know and uh, and things like that and uh, and just how radically I don't want to say the word transform. It's not the right way of putting it, but what a huge difference it made in how the Bible came alive and became understandable when the proper distinction of law and gospel is the thing that comes into play. And when they're taught it and they're shown that the purpose of the law is not to save us, but to show us our sin. And our standing, right standing before God is accomplished solely by Christ. Uh, and and you know then it start it, the Bible begins to start to make sense and you can begin to see Jesus and what He's done for us in every page of Scripture. It was fascinating, absolutely fascinating, being with a group of people, uh, you know, a large group of people, laymen and, and pastors alike, who have also had similar experiences. You know, it was. <clears throat> I don't want to. I don't want to portray it as one huge. You know, two thousand member group therapy session. <laughs> That's be the wrong way to put it, but uh, it, it was let, let's just say so refreshing to be with so many people. Where kind of shorthand, we all have such similar experiences that we actually understand each other, and a place where you don't have to put on the pretense that you've got it all together. That we're all sinners saved by grace. And uh, that was just absolutely refreshing and fantastic, and uh, and, and you know, big thank, uh, thank you for uh, you know Tully and Chavigian for putting that on and inviting me and letting me participate in that. It was it was just absolutely fantastic. And for those of you who would be tempted to think that uh, you know that the press regarding Tully and Chavigian is right and that he's really an antinomian, we've covered that here at Fighting for the Faith and his Friday night plenary session. It was brilliant. It it was absolutely spot on, brilliant. And I'm kind of hoping that, to be able to play it here, uh, you know, as a Friday episode here at Fighting for the Faith. We're waiting for video and audio to be posted. But Tully and Chavigian gave a lecture that uh, where he laid out not only law and gospel, but an important category that it kind of is important. Another game changer, if you would, it's the distinction between what's called the active active and passive righteousness. And uh, this has to do with the kind of the implications of of now how do we live out our lives as Christians. Passive righteousness tells us that we receive salvation from God purely passively because of what Christ has done for us. And then as a result of that and our right standing before God, we now actively do good works and stop thinking of ourselves and instead serve our neighbors. And, and it, it was just so well done, so well done. In, you know, in fact, you know, my notes on it basically say brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And I hope to be able to play that for you 
uh, in an upcoming episode, you know, because I think it's that good. And, you know, if you've never heard somebody lecture on not only law and gospel, but active and passive righteousness, Coram Deo, Coram Mundo, uh, Tullian just did you know, just a knock it out of the park job in uh, communicating that. And, and uh, again, worth passing along. So, um, it, it was a little bit of a busy week, week, weekend for me. Um, yeah, it, <laughs> I was thinking, you know, come into Monday going, I have not had a day off. And you, yeah, it's just kind of, going to have to trudge through and figure out a way to function for the next few days uh, before I <laughs> it'll slow down a little bit. And uh, and it didn't help that I had a just a zinger of a migraine headache yesterday. So anyway, I, I'm not trying to complain, but uh, you know, one of those things. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I'm going to endeavor to uh, to do a normal episode of Fighting for the Faith, at least as normal as uh, as I could possibly think of. And uh, what we're going to be doing to start things off is uh, we are going to begin with a Patricia King update, a Patricia King for real update. And uh, she just recently did another Patricia King live, and she's talking about the prophets speaking. And, uh, well, we'll kind of listen in to the latest Patricia King live to see what it is that she has to say about the prophets speaking. Then we're going to kind of stay in the same vein. We're going to do a new apostolic uh, Reformation update, kind of two pieces, if you would. We're going to start with Prophecy Open Mic over at uh, Glory of Zion. And the the latest, the latest Prophecy Open Mic um, includes Lisa Lyons, Janice Swinney, Elaine Priestley, and uh, Clancy Cunningham. Uh, the Prophecy Open Mic over there at Glory of Zion is kind of a big deal. And uh, the name of this one from their Prophecy Center over at Glory of Zion is entitled A Door is Opening. Door, so this has something to do with doors and portals and stuff like that. And then we'll switch gears again. And we're going to, you know, still under the auspices of the New Apostolic Reformation update, we will be uh, listening to a por- <laughs> portion, oh man, of the uh, latest episode of God Knows. Yeah, and no, I, I always have to say this because new listeners think I'm making up the name. I didn't make up the name. The name of the television program is God Knows. And we, whenever we listen to episodes of God Knows, we kind of throw up our hands in the air and say, yeah, I don't know what that meant. Well, you know, God knows. And uh, so we'll be listening to um, Chuck Pierce. Uh-huh. Chuck Pierce of Glory of Zion appearing on Mike and Cindy Jacobs' program, God Knows, as they talk about uh, inheritance yeah, think, uh, and how to unlock your inheritance. And so we'll be listening to that. And then to round out hour number one, we will be uh, listening to Joel Osteen. You know, thinking one of these things is not like the other, but no, really, they all have something in common. And we're going to be listening to a portion of his latest in- message entitled Secret Frustrations. Secret Frustrations. Uh, you know, well, apparently that's, that could be a bad thing, and it could keep you from achieving your potential and stuff like that. So we'll have to listen in to what uh, Joel Osteen has to say about that. And then we're going to do an hour number two. We're going to do a sermon review from a church I have not reviewed a sermon from for a while. And uh, that's Aviator Church out there in Derby, Kansas. Uh, Pastor, lead vision casting leader Joe Boyd has uh, been preaching his way through a sermon series entitled 50 Days of Transformation. And uh, we're going to be listening specifically to see if he's properly distinguishing law and gospel. Yeah, that's kind of a 
uh, we'll have to put a, a sharpen our pencils and put our thinking caps on as we listen to uh, the sermon there on 50 Days of Transformation. So uh, that's going to round out today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I recommend that you make yourself comfortable. We have a lot, and I do mean a lot of ground to cover. And uh, and because of some of the weirdness that we're going to be listening to between Patricia King, Chuck Pierce, and the Prophecy Open Mic, I do think that uh, for the safety of uh, my listeners, I, I should do this. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. You've been warned. So, uh, apparently Patricia King had another one of those Patricia King Live programs, and um, we're going to be listening to a portion of it, kind of picking up right in the center of it, as she's talking about the prophets speaking. Yeah, here's Patricia King to explain. Just a little while ago, actually, within this last month, he revealed that on a global level, there is a an assault of a Leviathan spirit, which is... Oh, no. I Wow. Uh, folks, um, we, we might need to issue a warning here. Uh, the, global warning uh, being issued here at Fighting for the Faith. And listeners of Fighting for the Faith, you heard it here first. There is a global assault of a Leviathan spirit. The, the Lord is speaking through the prophets, uh, the prophet Patricia King. And so I, I'm not exactly sure what precautions you need to take in order to protect yourself from the global assault of the Leviathan spirit. But, um, yeah, I, I'm thinking maybe put salt around the, you know, the portals entries to your home you know, maybe under the window sills, uh, by the doors, and things like that. You may want to grab some garlic. I'm I'm hoping that the Leviathan is uh, well repelled by garlic. I I'm not sure exactly. You may want to load your Beretta with a uh, with a silver bullet just in case, and keep a crucifix and holy water nearby. There is a global assault of a Leviathan spirit. You heard heard it here first at Fighting for the Faith. Twisted serpent that twists communication and relationships. We'll go into some more detail on that in a moment. But it's actually hitting on global levels. And a lot of you are being hit in your personal lives, in your families, in your workplace, in your churches. But you might not even realize that it is an actual spirit. So, Robert, I know that there's there's two areas. This is Robert Hodgkin with Patricia King on Patricia King Live. It's usually of assault um, where the enemy comes in. You know, we're, we're not a ministry that loves to focus on the enemy, but when you're in a season of warfare, you need to know who your enemy is. That's right. That's you know, right. So you don't want to exalt the enemy, but you need to be aware of him. You don't go out to war without knowing who your enemy That's is. Right. And so there's two areas. In John 10.10, 10, it says the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Right. Yeah, that's, that is what John 10.10 10 says out of context. But in the context, when you understand who the thief is, it's not the devil or a Leviathan spirit. It's actually false teachers. 
Yeah, go and read it in context. You'll see what I'm saying. That's the referent there. Jesus said those words, so we have to be aware of that, That's right? right? And so if we have already obtained territory that we're walking in, the enemy might try to disturb that territory. That's and right. if we see that he is, we need to put him in his place and yes. just, you know, he's... he's. Yeah, so, I mean, if the Lord has given you territory, um, not sure what that means. Um, if uh, Well, um, if you have... Maybe you've received territory from the Lord in the in the fact that maybe you've inherited a farm with several hundred acres or something, um, you know, and and you're out walking. You need to, you know, the Leviathan spirit might come against you in your territory. <laughs> really, what, what territory am I supposed to be receiving from God again? He's going to flee. But the second area is when we're getting ready to go and take brand new territory. For example, so if you're going to go and take brand new territory, you know you've um, you've called up your military, and you know you've got the uh, the warplanes and the tanks and the ground troops ready, and you know you're um, ready to launch into to take some more territory. Maybe you need the uh, the back forty acres of your neighbor's uh, you know farm or something. You know you got to be ready here. When Israel was told by God to go in and yeah. take over the promised land, they were to possess and occupy it. It was full of giants. That's right. He led them into a land that was full of giants. And the reason why is he wanted to make them victors. He wanted to make them victors. So they went in. They had to take out all the giants, leaving none behind, so that they could possess and occupy that realm of authority, that good land. That's right. And- right, that realm of authority. So, you know, it brought, God's probably got you getting you know, poised to you know, get ready to go and take and occupy new land. And there's probably some kind of giants out there. And so you you need to, and the, and the Leviathan spirit might keep you from taking it. Right. Many of you are in an area where um, you are taking over new realms of authority in the spirit. New realms of authority in the spirit. Yeah, you so... Oh, I have no idea what this means. And new areas. We are at XP, too. We've been just in this season, you yeah. know, just taking over new ground, stepping into things we've never done before. Yeah, I'm sure you've been stepping in it. So we're noticing that there's some hits, there's some That's resistance. Right. Amen? Yeah. And so we get to overcome. That's you right. Know, God raises up warriors. He trains our hands to war. He teaches us to bend the bow of bronze. So when there's warfare, it's not a sign that God isn't with us. It's actually a sign that he is, and he's bringing us into something that he's promised. Exactly. Uh-huh, yeah, so because you are you know, you know, need to bend the bow of bronze and there's while you're taking new territory because you're warriors, and the Leviathan thing is... Um, any of this making any sense to any of you? I'm quite baffled. Now, I'm excited about this because this Leviathan spirit that we're going to focus on for a little while because it's, it's assaulting nations yeah. and it's yeah. assaulting individuals. Um, it says in Isaiah 27, verse 1, In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, mm. the fleeing serpent, Amen. with his fierce and great and mighty sword. Mm. Even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, mm. and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to get to Isaiah 27, 1 out of context. What is going on in this text? Yeah, by the way, Isaiah takes a little bit of work if you really want to understand what's going on here because there's portions of Isaiah that are, in a sense, kind of apocalyptic. You know, the meaning is hidden in symbols. 
Um, but uh, please tell us what this means, Patricia. I think that is a very powerful promise for us. Yep. You know, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ actually overcame Leviathan. It says in the scripture, for this purpose, the Son of God was made manifest to destroy the works of the evil one. And so 2,000 years ago, through the finished work of the cross, right. through what he did in the grave and his resurrection power, he made an open show of the principalities and powers and destroyed their powers. Destroy every work of the enemy. He hung on the cross. He said, it's finished. So every work is finished, including Leviathan. So we- wow, I'm so glad that uh, now we can talk about Christ's victorious death over Leviathan. Um, I guess that's sort of right. Um, but you said Leviathan was on the loose. How did he get out? to do is hide inside of Jesus. Amen? That's right. So if you're in spiritual warfare, you hide inside of Jesus and you just go to battle with him to execute what's already been finished. So it's like... it's. <laughs> so our war strategy, folks. Okay. So I'm still thinking salt around the doors and windows might be an important thing to keep Leviathan out of your house and maybe in your church, too. But um, the way you <laughs> overcome... Leviathan is to hide in Jesus and then war with him. I have no idea what those words mean. <laughs> so I so the prophets are speaking, folks. I you know, they're saying some very important things. They've issued a global warning. You know, Leviathan's on the loose. And so you know, salt your windows and doors and learn how to hide in Jesus and then war with him so that you can claim what's already been defeated kind of thingy. I, yeah, I, I have no idea. I mean, it's, this is just preposterously ridiculous. Um, the only thing I can say is time to move along. Chief, babe, what do you want to do tonight? Same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. Elaboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. They're Pinky, they're Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain. So to start off our new Apostolic Reformation update, which is in two parts today, we're going to head down to Glory of Zion and uh, listen in to another episode of Prophecy Open Mic. This particular prophecy video is entitled, A Door is Opening, and features Lisa Lyons, Janice Swinney, Elaine Priestley, and Clancy Cunningham. So without any further ado, like I said, our general warning is still in effect here. Um, Here is the latest installment of... Prophecy Open Mic from Glory of Zion out there in Texas. Here we go. I was seeing in people all of those portals, and they formed a maze. And the Lord said, I've got so many people that are just running around, and they're so busy going nowhere. But the Lord says, begin to watch for a door, because if you've been in that maze, God says, I'm going to cause a door to form 
where one has not been before. That is your way of escape. That is your way of deliverance. This is the day that I've taken my people out of themselves, and I'm putting them on a straight path for the kingdom. All right. So uh, apparently if uh, you've experienced one of those portals, you know, I, you know, um, <laughs> And it turned into a maze, and you were stuck in the maze. Well, good news is God is sending a door to uh, get you out of the portal maze. Okay. I had a dream, and I dreamt that there were several ancient doors standing before me. They were very large, old wooden doors. And I knew, and all the doors was locked. And I knew that I was supposed to go through the door, but fear was upon me. And I was looking and saying, I don't know how to go through the door. But finally, I gained enough strength to step forward, and I just hit one door and it opened. And I thought, whoa, that was easy. And I looked at the other doors, and I said, woohoo! And I took off running, and door after door after door after door opened for me. So I decree the portal of fear is closed, and that everything that's ours, our inheritance, we... So the portal of fear is closed. Well, this is good news, I think. night as I dreamed, I dreamed people were standing in front of doors, but they said, God, I've been here before. I've been here before. I've been here for before and I've not made it through. This is a season that God is healing our expectations. Uh-huh. So have your expectations been wounded? Uh, are they crushed or maybe ill? Uh, don't worry. God is going to heal your wounded expectations. Wow. What a whew, good word from God, you know? That once again, we may be where we started once, but Yay for healed expectations. We're going through. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for shouting. We are going through. Get it? We're going through. Yeah, I got it. I I, I got it. I just don't think that was the Holy Spirit talking to you there. Uh, the perfect picture of that is that some of us have had to change our path getting here because as John just sang the bur- the bridge has been burned it has been destroyed so the bridge has been burned the portals have turned into a maze god's sending a door and you know and the door the portal of fear is closed and you know when you press on the doors they'll whatever and your expectations will be healed mhm Really? This is from God the Holy Spirit. So I believe that is such a prophetic sign for all. Yeah, I bet you do. All together here. The Lord is saying the old path is no longer working, but I have already. Yeah, I, I think if this is the new path, it, it's definitely not working at all. I think the old path worked a lot better, you know. Reading from the Bible. Ready created a new path. It will be strange to you at first. I keep telling everybody, they say, oh, go the back way. I said, I get lost when I go the back way. But <laughs> the back way to where exactly? I'm learning. 
in some back ways. So the Lord is saying this path, I have a new place. I have a new portal. I have a new way for you to go. And the Lord said, do not resist the new way. It's those old patterns, those old portal patterns that have been over you that say, well, it's got to be done this way, or this is just the way I am. We haven't seen the way we are in its fullness. So Lord, we say today, we are changing our expectation, Lord, of you, of your leading, of your vision, of the way you're bringing us in this season. Today is a new day. We say, Lord, burn every bridge. Burn them, Lord. Burn them. Behind us that you don't intend for me to ever cross again. These are the days of closing those paths. Yeah, um, one of the uh, sentences I use here from time to time at Fighting for the Faith to describe, well, what it is that we just heard or things like that is the sentence, blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. You'll notice that, you know, it has a grammatically correct sentence structure. Yeah, there's a noun and a verb <laughs> and things like that. And, uh, well, uh, the problem is, is that despite the fact that technically it's a gra- grammatically correct Sentence, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So that was a um, what I would consider yet another example of blue sleeps faster than Tuesday type of um, uh, prophecy. I don't think that's prophecy. I just think it's made up stuff designed to create the impression that it's prophecy. But God, the Holy Spirit, is a lot more lucid than that, way more lucid. In fact, he's um, capable of communicating to people using common language. And, in, you know, if you want to talk about where he's done this really significantly, read Scripture. Yeah, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, correcting, and rebuking. Yeah, you get the whole point. Anyway, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, a little bit more of uh, New Apostolic Reformation with Chuck Pierce and then a Joel Osteen update to end up the first hour. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss him. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents... Church Day Select. Siri, what is your analysis of the sermon Rick Warren preached this past Sunday? Let me think about that. Here you go. 
Rick Warren quoted 15 Bible verses out of context using 11 different translations and paraphrases. Even an iPhone utilizing artificial intelligence is smart enough to know that there is less than a 1 in 10,000 chance that Rick Warren was preaching the truth. Siri, can you explain your analysis of Rick Warren's sermon to somebody who is a fan of Star Wars? You have a greater chance of successfully navigating an asteroid field than you do of hearing Rick Warren accurately teach the scriptures. Have you ever prayed a sun stand still prayer? Why would I do something as silly as that? The story of the sun standing still in Joshua chapter 10 is not about prayer. Looking in Joshua chapter 10 to learn how to pray is like asking your Macintosh to teach you how to use Windows 7. What do you think of Joel Osteen's sermons? Is this a joke? No, this is not a joke. I'd really like to know what you think of Joel Osteen's sermons. Words like junk food, cotton candy, and cancer-causing artificial sweeteners come to mind. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that people claiming to be receiving prophecies from God are not speaking the truth. And that would be a good thing. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That's a great way to support us. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to post office box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. Let me thank you for your support because we cannot do what we are doing here without it. And for those of you in and around Albuquerque, New Mexico, here are the details for my uh, upcoming lectures at Grace Lutheran Church. And yeah, it's Grace Lutheran Church. On at 7550 Eubank Boulevard Northeast in Albuquerque, New Mexico. 
And on March 7th, the Saturday, March 7th, starting at 9.30 in the morning and ending about between 2.30 and 3 in the afternoon, um, I will be lecturing, doing a series of lectures that were entitled uh, Broken, the Face of Evangelical Christianity. So we're going to talk about what's at the heart of the defective worldview of uh, seeker-driven uh, pastors regarding their preaching and teaching. Uh, we're going to talk about the historical antecedents to the purpose-driven ecclesiastical model and um, and also take a look at an exegetical analysis of modern-day manifestations of uh, the charismatic gifts. And so uh, if you have the opportunity to come to Grace Lutheran Church on March 7th in Albuquerque, New Mexico, we would love to see you there. This is The, the lectures are free. Um, I, when I lecture at places like this, we, uh, we generally do what we call a free will offering. But since Lutherans don't believe in free will, um, what we will be doing is we'll be having a bound will offering, you know, to... <laughs> that kind of so if you're going to be in and around Albuquerque, New Mexico, March 7th, or you have the ability to travel out there, uh, would love the opportunity to meet you. And I promise we will have a good time and there will be uh, questions and answer period uh, with each of the lectures. So, uh, again, March 7th, Grace Lutheran Church, Albuquerque, New Mexico, starting at 930 in the morning. Hope to see some of you there. OK, now we are still under the uh, general rubric of um the uh, New Apostolic Reformation updates, and uh, here is uh, Chuck Pierce of Glory of Zion, who recently appeared on Mike and Cindy Jacobs' television program entitled God Knows, and uh, in ta- talking about unlocking your inheritance. Here we go. Hi, welcome to God Knows. You know, there are these moments, Mike, when we're just going, wow, we can't believe who we have on the air with us. Oh, well, the thing is, when we when we talk, when we're getting ready, and the Lord starts telling us what he wants to release through the program today. Yeah, see, the problem is, I'm not convinced you actually are hearing from the one true God. So when your deity talks about releasing things through your program, I wonder if it's like, you know, releasing the spiritual equivalent of the Ebola virus on the body of Christ. It's exciting. Yeah, we should probably tape. We have with us on set our very good friend, family, Chuck Pierce. Chuck is known internationally as a prophet. No, he... (laughs) Yeah, I, I I happen to be part of the international community. Although I live in North Dakota, um, I you know I'm part of the international community because the international community includes everybody in the world. And yeah, as as a member of the international community, I would have to protest. I do not believe for a second that Chuck Pierce is a prophet. So he's known. Well, in this part of the international community, as a false prophet, as a wingnut, as somebody who's deceived and deceiving people. An Issachar prophet, if he tells you a certain date something's going to happen, you can take it to the bank. Uh-huh. And- so he's an Issachar prophet. So can you explain to me the meaning of his leaky sound membrane prophecy that we played not too long ago here at Fighting for the Faith? You know, Because you could take that one to the bank, and I'm not sure I really want to. Personally done that, author of many, many books, established a fabulous global spear center in a part of the Texas here in the Dallas area, Corinth, uh, and he has glory of Zion International, brings reconciliation between Christ- Christians and Jews um, and Arabs, and 
I don't know. I could go on a long, right. long time. And we've been together a long, <laughs> long, long, long time. time. Yeah. We have been. What a joy to be with both of you. I can't think of anybody I'd rather be during the holiday season coming over to see than you two. Yeah. Well, you know, we were talking about inheritance. Yeah. And, you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And we were talking about inheritance. Yeah. And, and, and guys, Chuck Pierce's mama has just gone to be with the Lord. And we were, of course, we're grateful. We're thinking yeah. about it. But you were talking about a word I gave you in the 90s. It was in 1992. We were at the beginning of the ministry. We were all, we would get together. We would sit around in a circle. We would pray. <laughs> We'd pray for cities. We'd pray for nations. And then all of a sudden, one day you got up and you said to me, you said, even though you've had a lot of evil in your inheritance, you said you want to redeem that inheritance mm. no matter how much the enemy got in it. There's mm. still a, mm. a glorious bloodline of the Lord in it that you want to pull out. Uh-huh. Glorious bloodline of the Lord in it that you want to pull out. Blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. Um, hmm, there's nouns. There's verbs. There's sentences that technically are grammatically correct, and none of it makes any sense. And I'm looking at the video, and Cindy Jacobs is looking at Chuck Pierce like, wow, this is the best thing ever. And I'm looking at it going like, this doesn't make any sense at all. And at that point, my mother had asked me to come to a um, uh, family gathering, a big family gathering. Her family came from Luxembourg. And then married into the native people here. And they would always have a big gathering at the beginning of each May. And she invited me to come. And you actually, before we were sending people apostolically, you and Mike laid hands and said, you go to that gathering. Mm -hmm. And when I got there, it was in 1992, I shared at the gathering, big family unit, about 300 and she, for the first time, laid her hand wow. on me mm-hmm. and said, I bless what you're doing. I bless you here, and I bless you in the nations. Wow. And from that day forth, I can honestly say the inheritance that God had promised me in that family, even what had been scattered, to this day, it has all been mm-hmm. reconciled. And, and, and family, like, at property. Yeah, what does any of that mean? God put back together a puzzle that had been lost. Mm. Uh-huh. God put back together a puzzle that's been lost. Okay. W- what does that mean? I think that's what a lot of people right now need to understand. This is a season where God is saying, I'll give you clear vision if you'll allow me to put the puzzle back together so you can see what you were supposed to look like. Yeah, that's a- uh, yeah. Whew. Yeah, so um, God's saying he's going to give you a clear vision, but there's a contingency. You have to be willing to let him put the puzzle back together so that you can see what you were supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. Um, Not even remotely sure what any of that means. And if there's one thing I see going on this year, Mike and Cindy, that is so important, this is a year of God bringing out the identity of his people. Mm. Oh, yeah. So God's bringing out the identity of his people right now Mm -hmm. because he wants to give them a clear vision if they'll let him put the puzzle, you know, because there was a lost puzzle that was, yeah, uh uh-huh. Right, yeah. 
bringing out the identity, true identity of a nation, mm. what it should be. Those are the two key words that we've been hearing. And if we don't, I'm telling you, if we don't move in that right now, we're going to miss it for a whole nother generation. Mm. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. So we better move in it or we'll miss it for a whole generation. <laughs> miss what? Move where? Do what again? I do that. We don't want to do it at all. Yeah. Well, okay. So, you know, I remember that, that when we first met, you had had inheritance and you gave it away. Yeah, you walked away from inheritance, didn't what you? What had happened was we had had a wonderful inheritance. My dad had acquired all the inheritance mm-hmm. of our mm-hmm. family mm-hmm. bloodline on mm-hmm. his side. Mm-hmm. And then it I mean, fell big. in. Big inheritance. Yeah. A lot of land, a lot of blessings that fell under corruption. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I tell you what my mother did, which is good for some of you that will be listening out there. She could have gone bankrupt over his confusion and mistakes, Mm. and we could have lost everything. Mm. Wow. But what she chose to do was she worked three jobs, paid off all of his debt, and then resecured the inheritance of the land, then sold it. Mm. I feel like what happened with that... Some sort of reproach did not come down on yeah. me. Wow, now, wow. Now, I think today while we're talking about this, that's what we want to talk about. Yeah, that's good. How that's reproaches. Good. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's good. What are we talking about again? Get on an inheritance. Doesn't mean you don't have it. Uh-huh. But what will happen, this reproach will get on it, and there's no favor on you or your bloodlines mm. from that day forth. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, you know, if a reproach gets on to your inheritance, there's no favor for your bloodlines. Yeah. <laughs> I never even thought of that. Move. Wow. This is just my mind's blown. How about yours? He broke some reproach, and then when she sold that inheritance, God had visited me and said, I'll restore what you've lost. Mm -hmm. And then in the midst of it, what I have seen after that, of course, he died a very tragic death Mm -hmm. when he was 39. And after that, I have seen the Lord bring back. She married a man in North Texas who had double Uh, She was blessed double. Our family regained its uh, authority again. I think that's what you lose. You Mm. lose glory and you lose authority. Yeah. So, I mean, if there is a reproach on your inheritance and, you know, there's no favor on your bloodline, you know, then you lose authority and uh, and glory and stuff. Yeah. And there are people who watch this program thinking that, wow, this is the deepest thing ever. This is double speak. This is this is nothing that has to do with anything that God has communicated in his word to you. Wow. I am uh, <laughs> baffled beyond belief. Moving along. When I'm feeling lonely, sad as I can be, all by myself in an uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw, my shiny teeth and me. My shiny teeth that twinkle just like the stars in space. 
just like the Christmas tree. You know they walk a mile just to see me smile. Woo! Shiny teeth and me. That's right. That could mean only one thing here at Fighting for the Faith. It's time for a Joel Osteen update. And what we're going to be listening to is, well, a portion of his most recent message entitled Secret Frustrations. Do you suffer from secret frustrations? Well, the good news is Joel Osteen is here to help. Uh, so with that, we're going to take a listen to see what biblical passage he is going to bring to bear to free us from secret frustrations. Here's Joel Osteen. Discover the sinner in you. Well, God bless you. It's always a joy to come into your homes. And if you're ever in our area, please stop by and be a part of one of our services. I promise you, we'll make you feel right at home. But thanks so much for tuning in today, and thank you again for coming out. I like to start with something funny, and I heard about this little girl. She was sitting in her grandfather's lap, and she noticed how wrinkled his face was. As she contemplated the difference between his and hers, she asked, Granddaddy, did God make you? He kind of laughed and said, yes, honey, he made me a long time ago. She then asked, did God make me? He said, yes, he made you just a little while ago. Thought about it a moment, said, Granddaddy, God's getting better, isn't he? (laughs) Hold up your Bibles. Say it like you mean it. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the Word of God. No, really, you won't, like, at all. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name. God bless you. I want to talk to you today about secret frustrations. We can be blessed in many areas with good health, good family, a good job, but then just have one thing that's not right. One temptation we can't seem to overcome. One thing in a relationship that's not fulfilling. Or maybe one nagging health issue. One thing in a relationship that's not fulfilling. Hmm, I had no idea that God did something about that. Nobody can see it. On the outside, we seem fine, but on the inside, we're frustrated. I talked to a lady last week. She volunteers as one of our prayer partners. She and her husband have been believing to have a baby for many years with no success. And every so often during the services, she'll pray for people in that same situation to have a child. And over time, again and again, they'll bring their babies back. So happy. She sees their prayers being answered, but her own prayers not being answered. She looks like she's on top of the world. She's beautiful, successful, great husband. But what you can't see is this secret frustration. That one thing she can't understand. Life is full of contradictions. You're helping other people get well, but you don't feel that well. Your co-workers are all being promoted. You're working just as hard, producing just as much, but nobody notices you. If we're honest, we all have these secret frustrations, things that we know God could change. We know he could open the door. He could remove the temptation. He could give us the baby we've been dreaming about, but it's not happening. We have to realize God is a sovereign God. Uh, Well, okay, that's true. He is. We're not going to understand why everything happens. 
There are some things that God doesn't remove. Some situations he waits a long time to change. You have to trust that he knows what's best for you. Everything that's not changing, what he's not removing, if you'll keep the right attitude, it won't work against you. It will work for you. Ah, see, there you go. If you just keep the right attitude, yeah, it, God is going to cause it to work for you. Uh, yeah, notice the way the problem is set up here. And all the me focus, you know, it's as if, you know, God is like some kind of a genie up there and, well, in a magic lamp. And if you rub the lamp the right way, he's going to poof, show up. And and as long as you've, well, said the right words, that is, you've positively confessed, kept a good attitude, didn't complain or say anything negative in order to draw curses to yourself, then God, the magic genie, is going to do things in your life. And he, well, being the mysterious genie that he is, you know, he might fix everything in your life and make it just hunky-dunky except for one little thing. And you're thinking, why is my genie not giving me everything I want? <laughs> and he's supposed to give me everything I need. And um, and so uh, you know, when your genie has failed you in this way by not completing the task, well, good news, good news. That if you keep the right attitude, that one thing will work for you rather than against you. I I fear the text that he's going to go to on this because I, I could just see it coming. Don't let the contradictions of life cause you to be sour. Give up on your dreams. Yeah, okay. So this is all about, yeah, don't, whatever you do, don't get negative, man, so that you give up on your dreams because that's what the devil wants you to do. This is all this big cosmic battle over whether or not you're going to See your dreams fulfilled. Yeah, because that's what the devil's all about. He's the dream killer, you know. The Apostle Paul wrote over half of the New Testament. Yeah. He came from an influential family. He did. Was highly educated. Yeah, that he was. God used him in incredible ways. Yep. But as effective as Paul was, he had this secret frustration. He called it a thorn in his flesh. Uh, yeah, see, I knew this is where it was going. You could just see it coming. Scholars have debated for years whether that was a physical condition, some kind of illness, or whether it was emotional, the people coming against him, the persecution. But whatever this thorn was, whatever was bothering Paul, he asked God three times to remove it. One version says he implored God to take it away. That means he gave it his best argument. God, you know I'm being my best, serving you, writing all these books. The least you could do is heal me. <laughs> writing all these books, you know, because, you know, the Apostle Paul was the first century version of Joel Osteen. And, you know, and Paul's theology was all about keeping a positive attitude so that you can achieve your dreams. And so now comes along this thorn in the flesh, which was really a, created a secret frustration in his life. But Paul learned to keep a positive attitude so that the, that you know because that one thing that way it wouldn't work against him it would work for him if anybody had pull with god it would have been paul but what's interesting is god didn't remove the thorn he said paul my grace is sufficient for you my power shows up best in weakness is there something you've been imploring god to change 
situation in your health, your finances, a relationship. You've asked again and again. Nothing. Now, I, I need to do this. I need to actually take a look at this text because when we look at it in context, we'll see that this is not in the context of the Apostle Paul um, saying, keep a positive attitude so that you can achieve your dreams. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12 is where we are at. And... Um, I'll start at verse 1 for context's sake, although where we're going to be going is like um, verses 6, 7, 8. And, uh, but uh, let's take a look. Paul writes, I must go on boasting, though there is none, nothing to be gained by it. Now you're thinking, what was he boasting about? Well, let's take a look at the context of his boasting. And that's, we, we, in fact, we recently read this. And yeah, so we're going to back it up a little bit here. Paul is talking about the super apostles in chapter Second Corinthians chapter eleven, and also in twelve. And so Paul in Second Corinthians chapter eleven decides that he's going to engage in some foolish boasting in order to kind of show the absurdity of the so-called super apostles. And uh, here's what he says. Um, Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, this is verse 21, I'm speaking as a fool. So he's letting you know, this is him speaking as a fool. Well, I also dare to boast of that. So are they Hebrews? These are the super apostles. Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Well, I'm better. Um, I'm talking as a madman. Just, you know, he's talking crazy here on purpose. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of of my anxiety for all the churches Who is weak, and I am not weak. Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor and king Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands." Notice he's talking about his persecutions. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Well, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and to revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. But God knows. And he, this man, heard things that he cannot be that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my own weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the unsurpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, 
a messenger of Satan, to harass me and to keep me from becoming conceited. You'll notice here that Paul is not talking about how, you know, everything in his life just worked out hunky-dunky except for this one thorn in the flesh thing, and he learned how to keep a positive attitude so that his, you know, he wouldn't give up on his dreams. Nope. Paul actually explains why he received this thorn in the flesh. And Joel was right. Scholars debate what this was. About the best explanation that I have seen is that the Apostle Paul probably suffered from an eye condition. He had a a raging eye infection uh, that uh, he sort of mentions, I think, in the book of Galatians. And uh, and it may have been that he was you know, poor in health and had some kind of ailment pertaining to his eyes. Uh, that's probably the best ex- explanation I've seen. But th- here's the reason it was given to him. This revelation, you know, you talk about heavenly tourism. Paul didn't have a near-death experience and then go to heaven. The Lord actually took him to heaven, and he saw things of which he said he can't even speak about. He can't talk about it at all. And he says, because of the surpassing greatness of these visions, God gave him a thorn in his flesh so that he would not become conceited. That's what he's saying. This is what this is talking about. So notice the reason is given here. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super-apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you, with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mightily and mighty works, for in what in for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you, forgive me for this wrong, so you see that's what's going on here in chapters eleven and twelve. Paul is writing against the super apostles and their preposterous claims and goes on to boast and talks about ultimately about boasting and weakness. That's what is going on here. Did Joel Osteen care to give us the context? No, he created a fairy tale story about, oh, this one thing in your life may be given so that if you keep a positive attitude, it'll work for you rather than against you so you don't give up on your dreams. Things improving. I'm not saying to give up and settle there. What I'm saying is until God removes it, don't let it steal your joy. Don't let it sour your life. You have the grace to be there. The right attitude is I'm not going to let this secret frustration, this thorn in my flesh, so to speak, frustrate me anymore. God, I believe your grace is sufficient. Now, I know at the right time you'll change it. But even if you don't change it, I'm still going to be my best and honor you. You have to make up your mind that if your spouse never changes, 
If your health never improves, if you have to put up with that grouchy boss the rest of your life, you are not going to complain. You're not going to use it as an excuse to slack off. You're going to tap into this grace. It is sufficient for you. Here's a key. Yeah. Oh, man, what a mess. Don't stay focused on the frustration. If Paul would have gone around thinking, God, why won't you remove this thorn? Why won't you change my child? Why won't you help my business grow? If he would have stayed focused on the whys of life, he would have never fulfilled his destiny. Yeah, because there, there you go. Poor, you know, I'm so happy the Apostle Paul kept a positive attitude and didn't let that thorn in his flesh uh, work against him so that he could fulfill his destiny. Talk about missing the forest. Missing the forest because of a tree. And it, and it wasn't it wasn't even a tree in the forest that was legitimately supposed to be there. He, it, Joel Osteen ended up putting that tree in there to distract us from what was going on in that actual text. Ay, ay, ay. You get the point. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, my email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to head down to Aviator Church, Derby, Kansas. Yeah, 50 days of transformation. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Quiet on set! Lights! Camera! Action! Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents. Cut! 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 We don't need lights. This is for radio. Fine! Strike the lights, people! Striking! Can we keep the camera? No. No camera. Oh. But can we at least have some action? Let me look at the budget. Yeah, we can have some action. All right, then. Places, everyone! Action! Now, what is it this time? Um, we're not actually doing a max holiday right now. We're not? Then what are we doing? Well, we're actually promoting Mac and Trio, Inc. What on earth is that? It's a brand new company dedicated to providing quality and wholesome entertainment for all ages. That sounds interesting. Actually, Mac and Trio Inc. has already published three children's books that are available for purchase in both a digital and a hard copy format. And we even have a weekly online comic strip. Additionally, Mac and Trio Inc. is currently developing board games, card games, and even a children's television show. That sounds awesome! Where can I go to see all these great things? It's really simple. Just go to bit.ly forward slash Mac and Trio. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash M-A-C-K-I-N 
T-R-I-O. That's a wrap, folks! Opportunities Sermon Reviewing Service. Today's sermon comes to us via Aviator Church. Apparently this is a church for pilots. Out there in Derby, Kansas, uh, lead pastor Joe Boyd. Now it's been a while since we have reviewed a sermon from Aviator Church. And uh, we'll be listening to uh, one of the sermons from their 50 Days of Transformation sermon series. And we're going to be listening for proper distinction of law and gospel, sin, grace, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins, and whether or not the sanctification, which is being referred to here, is truly the fruit of the Spirit, or, well, if it's uh, something different. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is Joe Boyd of Aviator Church in 50 Days of Transformation. Here we go. What is going on, Aviator Church? Man, who's fired up to be here? Fantastic, because we are on a mission to see our cities transformed one life at a time. And we do that by honoring and building healthy at the speed of? Man. Yeah, um, so they're transforming their city, their community, one life at a time by Honoring God and, um, yeah, something about life at the speed of relation, whatever. That's their mission statement, by the way. That's kind of the point of their mission. Honoring God and building healthy relationships at the speed of life is their mission statement. Notice nothing there about penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and bearing fruit in keeping with that repentance. Honoring God, that's, well, um, that's something that has to do with the law. Building healthy relationships, well, that's second table of the law for sure. At the speed of life, I'm not sure what that means, but that's their their mission statement. So already we've got a problem here. Um, It's, notice, everything's law-based. And you guys are good. You got it. Hey, we're in a series called the 50 Days of Transformation. We wanted people to understand what this transformation of our city one life at a time looks like. And if you've got your, your worship guide, you might look on it. We've been taking this journey. We, we start off by talking about spiritual health, and then we talked about physical health. And today we're going to talk about mental health. Mental health. Are you nuts? I don't know about you, but have you ever done something where people thought you were crazy? Ever happened to you? Totally happened to me, right? 
I um, I can remember one time I was doing a wedding. I, I've done several weddings uh, over the years for Aviator Church, and and one time the 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 bride and the groom were emphatic that they wanted me to to dress like the groomsmen, and they were all wearing tuxes. Okay, and and some of you you're like, man, Joe, do you, like I didn't know you dressed up. Well, you probably have never been married before by me. I that's the time when I put on a suit, and more specifically, I was wearing a tuxedo. But I got there early. The the church was locked up. We we couldn't really get started, and I was hungry. You know, you ever been hungry? And you're just like, man, I. <laughs> if you didn't answer that one, you're dead. All right, so. So I was hungry, and, and the only place around was McDonald's. And so I went to McDonald's wearing my, my tuxedo. I mean, the only thing I was missing was, like, the top hat, and they weren't doing the Monopoly time. So it just seemed out of place. And if you want to get crazy looks from people, dress up in a tuxedo and go to Mickey D's. Like, they're loving it. You know, some people thought I was the focus of their Instagram. Other people were just like, what is wrong with that guy? You know, and so I ordered my Big Mac and I sat down and, you know, I was, I was eating my meal. And I looked really out of place wearing a tuxedo in McDonald's. And the reason why was because I was dressed for the wedding. See, whenever you get to the wedding, I was dressed. I was ready to go. Um, I was preparing for the thing that was to come. And there are times. Now, in seeker-driven parlance. This concept of, quote-unquote, dressing for the wedding is one of the key doctrines in the seeker-driven movement regarding seeker-driven leadership. Now, he's going to be applying this to people's lives so they can experience life transformation. And what he's doing here, though, applies to seeker-driven leadership. Have you ever wondered why seeker-driven churches do the things that they do. Well, one of the things they teach seeker-driven leaders is that they need to, quote-unquote, dress for the wedding in order to grow their church. So if they have a church of 500 people, they have to staff their church as if their church already had 750. Uh, yeah, because you got to dress for the wedding. you got to be prepared for the future of the church so that you can help make it happen. Um, really what this does is it burdens seeker-driven churches with high financial overhead. But so what you're hearing here, you may have heard me refer to this doctrine in the past. This is the doctrine of dressing for the wedding, key component of the seeker-driven movement. Let's let Joy, Joe continue to exp explain this. When you're going to do things that seem strange to other people because you're preparing for something that they don't yet know about. At Aviator Church, one of the principles we live by is dress for the wedding. The reason why we do things that, that are over the top and with excellence and exceptional and always focused out in our community, people say, man, that's strange. It's because we're dressing for the wedding. We're dressing for what's coming. We are 41 days away from Easter today, okay? 41 days. And man, yeah, they're dressing for the wedding, you know? Easter is a big deal around here. We, we always expect to double on Easter. We're anticipating this year that we're going to have over 2,000 people over four worship times on Easter in this place. Uh-huh. Yeah. So there, it's, notice he's casting vision for the upcoming Easter services. That's what he's doing right now, all under the auspices of explaining the doctrine of, quote-unquote, dressing for the wedding. All right, but if that's going to happen, we've got to dress for the wedding. We've got to get ready now before we show up. And so we're trying to bulk up 
in, in our generosity. We're trying to bulk up in our volunteer force. And some of you are like, do we really need more volunteers? Yes, because 2,000 people are coming. We're anticipating 500 kids showing up over four worship experiences. And so we want you guys to step up now. Inside your worship guide is a connect card, okay? Pull out the connect card. On the back of the connect card right here, it, it, underneath decisions I've made, and it's volunteer opportunities. Every dream deserves a team, okay? And we have a dream of changing the mind of 2,000 people about church and God on Easter right here. But in order to do that, we need to bulk up. And I'm not asking you to step up because nobody's showing up. I'm asking you because they're coming. And we want to be ready for them. And so we want people to start serving now to learn how to do it so that you don't get mowed over or blown away on the day or that we provide like a less than best experience for people. You need to. Yeah, you know, at a seeker driven church, you don't want to, you know, have people experience less than best. Yeah. Oh, no. They have to have a supreme worship experience in the worship room, you know, <clears throat> rather than sanctuary started now so that in this season we're ready for what's coming. And so I want to challenge you, serving kids, serving guest services, serving the worship, serving students, serving any way that we we can serve over this season because we're getting ready for God to do big, big things. All right? So today we're going to be talking about mental health. We're going to talk about how how what goes on in our mind determines what happens in our life. And if you want to change your life, you've got to begin by changing your mind. But have you ever noticed that your mind has a mind of its own? It just kind of does what it wants to do. And we find ourselves doing things that we wish we wouldn't do or that we shouldn't do. But the truth is it all begins in our mind. And so, so here's the question I have is the things that we shouldn't do or wouldn't do that we do do. <clears throat> yeah. Um, are those sins that Christ died for? Are we going to be told to repent and to be forgiven for those sins? So notice this is a treatment that has to do with sinful behavior, but he hasn't called it that yet. I want to start by focusing on a passage of scripture that is the theme for this entire transformation series. And it's from Romans 12, verse 2. This is the New Living Translation. It's now we got a problem here. And one of the things I've said in the past is that um, it's the weirdest thing that in evangelicalism, evangelicals, for whatever reason, somehow think that Romans begins in chapter 2. 12, and not at the beginning of the sentence, but oftentimes halfway through verse 1 or into verse 2. But let me read to you Romans chapter 12, verse 1, because that sets up the context of what's going on here. In fact, Romans, you know, the, the last half of Romans is in a way kind of a descriptive portion of what it looks like to live as one who is forgiven and saved by grace. Uh-huh. So let me let me read uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Now, what's the therefore, therefore? Because Paul is, at this point, concluded this wonderful portion of the book of Romans where he's laid out the doctrine of of justification by grace alone through faith alone, by what Christ alone has done for us. Therefore, brothers, 
in light of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So here's the idea. Okay, This is where we can talk about the categories of what's known as active and passive righteousness. Our right standing before God, Coram Deo, is established completely by what Christ has done for us and is received as a gift by grace through faith passively. We are reckoned righteous before God passively because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us by grace through faith. That's what we talk about, passive righteousness. As a result of the fact that our right standing before God is fully established by what Jesus has done for us, now that we are saved, set free from slavery to sin, death, the devil, we are now free to love and serve God and free to serve our neighbors, not for our sake, but for their sake purely, because our standing before God is totally secured by Christ. Therefore, it we live out the Christian faith in loving and serving others actively. So that's active righteousness. So passive righteousness is that vertical righteousness we receive from Christ for our salvation. It's received passively. Active righteousness is in light of that, Because we are saved and set free from sin, we are now free to love and serve our neighbor and gloriously not think about ourselves. Uh huh. So, this is so you got active and passive righteousness being played out here, but you cannot discuss active righteousness apart from passive righteousness because to do so is to literally cause people to believe that their right standing before God is secured in part or in whole by their active righteousness before their neighbors. You can't do that. That's why Romans 12 begins with, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in light of God's mercies, everything he's been preaching in the previous chapters, then present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may be discerned what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to you, every one among you must not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think in sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us then use them in proportion to our faith. Yeah, if service, serving, the one who teaches, teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, you, you get the idea of you know what I'm doing here. Actually, not me, but what Paul's doing here. So this is active and passive righteousness. And notice he's starting off in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, so that you can get to the word transformed. But you cannot understand true Christian sanctification and the transformation and renewal apart from faith in Christ and that salvation received passively. So we've got a little bit of a problem here. We continue. It says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world 
but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. All right, turn to your neighbor and say, think about it. We need to think about it because what we think determines how we feel and determines what we do. And we need to be prepared for it. This, um, this past week, I, um, I, I went to New Jersey. We had our staff advance. We got back from the staff advance on Wednesday. Thursday morning, I got up to go to a pastoral leadership event that was in New Jersey. And I had to get up, and it was 4.30 in the morning when I was heading out to the airport. All right? Then I was like really, really tired, but, but I, I had to get there. And when I showed up, it was kind of difficult to, to get checked in. And I didn't have time to get a snack or get some breakfast. I was just running and gunning to get on the plane. But when I went on the, got on the plane to go to Chicago, the weather was kind of crazy. The plane got delayed. We sat on the tarmac waiting to get in. Um, they, they, they sell snacks now on planes. They don't give them away anymore. And, uh, you know, I'd had my Coke or whatever that they let me have. And, and so it was just sort of like, man, I'm like, oh, I'm so hungry. But what I noticed was that every airport between here and Newark is loaded full of advertisements with steak. Have you ever seen that? Like you walk through the airport and they have this big picture of this delicious looking medium rare steak. And you're like, mmm, steak. And everywhere I went, I was like, mmm, porterhouse. And then it was like, mmm, ribeye. And then it's like, well, New Jersey's close to New York, New York Strip. You know, I was just into it. And, and, and one thing led to another, and, I, and all day long, all I had was just things to drink, and I didn't get to eat, and, and I had to meet up with somebody, and then, and then I was going to go over to the Holiday Inn across the street from the airport, and I was famished. And when I walked in, I said, man, do you guys have like a restaurant or room service? And he said, yes, sir, we do. And I said, man, do you guys have steak? Yes, I had it last night. It's delicious. It's got butter drizzled over it. It's fantastic. You'll love it, sir. And I'm like, that is awesome. So I'm thinking steak, 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 steak. Went upstairs, opened up the menu, looked down, placed the order. What do you think I got? Close. I had lettuce on a hamburger, all right? And the reason why I did was because when I looked in the menu, they wanted $57 for a steak. And I'm like, man, you people have lost your mind. Just because you lost your mind doesn't mean I'm going to lose mine. So I opted for the salad that was placed on a hamburger, all right? The next day I was talking to these pastors and I'm like, can you believe this? They wanted $57 for a steak. This guy goes, man, that's a bunch of bull. I said, no, not really. Only about 12 ounces. What we think about determines what we do. In that moment, I, I, if I would have just... Yeah, is sin only thought deep? That's a good question, is it not? Is the reason why you sin only because you're think, you have stinking thinking? No. Then I would have gotten a steak. But I thought about it, and it changed what I was going to do. And when we think about it, when we manage our mind, it could change things. And so today I want to talk to you about why I must manage my mind. And I think there's three reasons. The first is because my thoughts control my life. Um, And what does it mean to have your mind transformed? Just change your thinking? Think determines what you do. It says it in Proverbs 4.23. Be careful how you think. Your life is shaped by your thoughts, 
right? Think good things, you go in good directions. Think bad things, you go in bad directions. It's just the way it is. And the second reason is because my mind is a battleground for sin. See, the truth of the matter is we don't fight most of our battles with swords and knives and guns. We fight most of our battles in our mind. The battle is won or lost in our mind because if we win and lose here, it determines what we do. In fact, Romans 7 verse 22 and 23 reveals that. It says, I love to do God's will so far as my nature is concerned. But, and this is a big but, there's something deep something else deep within me that is at war. Everybody say war, war. within my mind and wins the fight, say fight, fight. and makes me a slave, say slave, slave to the sin within me in my mind. I want to be God's servant, but instead I find myself still enslaved to sin. See, we, we, we fight this battle all the time and it's a battle in our mind. What am I going to do? I want to do what's right, but I tend to give in. Yet, when you read the rest of Romans, you know, Romans 7 in particular, it leads into 8. You know, Paul bemoans, you know, you know the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I uh, don't want to do, I do. Who will save me from this body of death, he says. And then Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Notice he says, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds. He doesn't say that you manage your minds. It's first and foremost those who live according to the Spirit by grace through faith. To set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Uh huh. So you see what's going on here is that, well, Joe Boyd, in an attempt to create a relevant life-transforming message, is not actually teaching what God's Word says regarding true Christian sanctification because it can true Christian sanctification does not happen apart from the Spirit, and it does not happen apart from grace and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. He's, in a sense, preaching self-righteousness through managing what goes on inside of your mind and as if somehow that's going to solve your sin problem. The thing is, is that your mind is set according, you know, set on the flesh. And you must live in the spirit. If you, you know, the, to live in the spirit is to set the mind on the spirit. Yeah, faith is required before you can make any progress whatsoever in true Christian sanctification. 
So what he's preaching here is law and life transformation through a, you know controlling your mind, and he's not even bringing grace and faith and the Spirit to play and to bear on this, which means this isn't Christian sanctification, nor is it real life transformation as a result of being reconciled to God by grace through faith. To my desires, I give in to temptation. I, I, I find myself getting trapped and tripped up over hurts and habits and hang-ups. And it leaves me in a place where, where I feel defeated all the time. And so a third reason why we need to, to manage our mind is because it's the key to peace and happiness. See, whenever my mind is, I have a lot on my mind. You ever heard that phrase? You're thinking about stuff. You're, you're trying to do things by yourself. You're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. It, you have mental fatigue. You're, you're just worn out. And, and it's because we try to control things ourselves. That's why, like, like the bookstore makes millions of dollars because they try to use self-help books. But the problem is if we could help ourselves, then we would never have a need for God. And God says, wait, you're not, you're not made to be dependent upon just information or just this. You're made to be dependent upon me. And, and he gives us this clear distinction of what happens. In, in Romans 8, 6, it says, if your sinful mind controls, if your sinful nature controls your mind, there is death. But if the Holy Spirit controls your mind, there is life and peace. See, I knew that was true this week because I had a critical decision. I kept thinking about how am I going to get around in New Jersey? My question is, how are you supposed to have life and peace in the Holy Spirit apart from faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins? That's just not going to happen. (sighs) So... Notice he skipped Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he skips ahead and says, well, you got to have the spirit, you, you know, or, you know, let the spirit be in charge. But you don't have the spirit apart from being reconciled to God by grace through faith. Crazy drivers are aggressive. Okay. And, and, and the roads are kind of crazy and they have these weird jug handle turns and it's just strange. And so I had a decision. Am I going to rent a car? Or am I going to take a taxi? Because if I rented a car, then I'm in control, but I have no idea where I was going. And my cell phone died and I didn't have a charger, so I had no GPS. And I just thought, man, that's too much. I'm, I, I'm, it's going to lead to a bad day. So what I decided to do was, was actually get a taxi driver. And he's internationally renowned. He was from India and he showed up and, um, and he, he took me there and, and it was really interesting because I prayed more on that drive than any other time in the conference. (laughs) He was whipping around and he was saying things that I wouldn't repeat here, but, but he got us there. Okay. And it reminds me of like this time that, um, there was a pastor and a New York city taxi driver that both went to heaven and the, uh, the, the, you know, People don't know this, but you get crowns of, of, you know, for things that you do, like crown of righteousness and when you make a sacrifice and martyrs and people like that, they get an extra crown when they go to heaven. And so the taxi driver, he goes up to heaven and, and they look at what he's done in his life and they give him a crown and he walks in and, and they shake his hand and say, welcome to heaven. And this pastor's thinking, man, if that New York taxi driver got in hooked up with a crown, I'm going to have two or three crowns. And so he goes up and they look at what he did and they, they look at it and they shake his hand and say, welcome to heaven. 
And he goes, wait a minute. I'm a pastor. That guy's a taxi driver. He got a crown and I didn't. What gives? And they looked at him and they said, well, when we looked at what you do for your job, people just go to sleep. And whenever he does his job, people pray like never before. (laughs) It's all in how you look at it. Okay. So it's all about perspective. We've got to get perspective. And that means that we've got to make some choices. I chose to use a taxi and and you've got to make a choice in where you're going to go because your thoughts are not the things that lead to action. It's your choices based on those thoughts that lead to action. So there's three daily choices for a healthy mind. You need to feed your mind. You need to free your mind and you need to Focus your mind. And so I want to walk you through these three things that we need to do in order to be healthy mentally and and change our minds so that we can change our life to honor God. The first one is this. I must feed my mind with the truth. Everybody say truth. Now, the interesting thing is people don't really like, like dig in and eat a lot of truth. They really don't. What happens is we believe the thoughts in our head and believe those are true. Let me just, let me just put you at ease. Not everything that's in your mind is true. All right. How many of you, how many of you are like, okay, that's true. It's true that not everything in my mind is true. We have crazy thoughts that limit us and, and stop us from, from making decisions. Like, perfect example. Whenever I was in high school, um, me and my buddies, we, you know, we always wanted to go out and date some girl or whatever. But there was the, there was the really good-looking girl that it seemed like she's not attainable. You know, how many of you ever been in that trap? You're like, oh, that person, they're just, they're too amazing. I, I, they would never go out with me. And so you don't ask them out. But see, I grew up in a house, and my sister was was six foot tall, blonde, beautiful. She got all the good-looking jeans. I got the leftover hand-me-down jeans, and so that's how I turned out. But but the truth is, like, not, not a lot of guys asked her out because they were scared. And the truth is, most really good-looking girls or guys don't get asked out because people lack the courage to just step up and ask. Another thing that's true is that not every pretty girl has good eyesight. That's how I got married. You know, it's like, you just got to step up and, and, and work it out. So I must feed my mind with the truth. All right. Which tells the reason why I know that to be true is Matthew four, four, Matthew four, four says this. It says, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Yeah. That's what Jesus was quoting, uh, to the devil who was tempting him in, uh, Matthew 4, 4, but this is true. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Most certainly true. The truth is the word of God. God literally speaks truth, and the Bible's full of truth. And, and, and the truth will set us free. The truth will feed our soul. In fact, sometimes we get negative because we believe lies. We would be incredibly positive if we would just believe the truth. Do you know there's over 7,000 promises of God in the Bible? And if we knew those and we were focused on those, we wouldn't be negative. It would be hard to be down about life. It would be hard to want to give up because... Now, this is a little bit of a subtle thing here. So he's he's advocating reading scripture. The scripture has something to do with transforming our mind. This is true. But notice that the idea here is, is that I've got to do something in order to attain something. 
This is a performance-based religion. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a good thing. I'm going to read my Bible. But I'm going to read my Bible because by doing this, I'm expecting that it's, you know, that God's going to do something and I'm going to earn this by doing the good thing. That's a problem. It's a huge problem. Rather than saying, I have been renewed by Christ, I have been regenerate and put on the new man who already is because God has made me alive in Christ. Uh huh. This is what the difference between living by the Spirit as opposed to living by the flesh. Living by the Spirit, and Paul writing in Romans 8, assumes that the, these are Christians he's talking to who already have the Spirit that they are already new in Christ. And so there's that tension between our old nature and the fight of our old nature and our old self versus our new nature and our new self in, you know, that's been created in Christ. These are important distinctions to keep in mind because when you understand that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by what Christ alone has done for you, passive righteousness, then you understand that you are a, already a new creation in Christ. And the daily struggle is the daily repenting of your sins and putting on the new man that already is. Rather than doing, you know, transforming things in order to become something you know, by your striving. I know it seems like a subtle distinction, but it's a distinction that makes the difference of the whole world. Our God tells the truth and he makes incredible promises. If we will feed ourselves on the truth, it will change us. But then the question is, how often should I feed my mind? And I got to thinking about that because trainers and nutritionists have told me, you know, the worst things that you can do is skip meals because that causes you to get really hungry and your blood sugar goes nuts and you overeat and you overcompensate and it kind of puts you in a bad place. So the best thing you can do is eat several small meals throughout the day or snack all day. And what instead of doing the roller coaster, what you do is you kind of level out and you become really efficient. So I, I decided I would look in the Bible to see when we should feed on God's word. David, who was one of the key writers of, of Psalms, gives us three scenarios to consider. And they're all in Psalms. The first one is this. Uh, Psalms 119 verse 147 says, I rise early. You know, and I'm like, whoa, an act of God would have to wake me up in the morning, right? To cry out for help. That's when you pray. You're crying out for help and put my hope. Everybody say hope in your words. See, he cries out to God. He prays to God. He seeks God and he begins with the truth and his hope is found in the truth because God's truth is what will feed and nourish us. In fact, they say the worst meal you notice, he says that I would hope in your words. That's like saying that I would trust and believe. Notice. Passive righteousness is right there in the text that he talked about, but Joe Boyd doesn't know how to see it. Today is breakfast because it kind of starts you off on the wrong foot. Start your day off with God's word. But then he would continue to satisfy his appetite for scripture throughout the day. In Psalm 119, 97, it says, Lord, how I love your word. See, instead of, instead of thinking steak, He's thinking, man, scripture can change my life. He says, I think about it all day long. What you think about is what you dwell on, and what you dwell on is what you look for, and what you look for is what you find. 
And see, if you continue to dwell and think on the good things and the promises and things that God has to offer, it'll feed your soul and prepare you for what you need to do next. In fact, for those of you that are kind of late night snackers, he's even got a verse, Psalm 16, verse 7. It says, even in the darkest of night, your teachings fill my mind. They fill my mind. My mind is full. There's no room to like think about that Taco Bell fourth meal. There's no room to, to start thinking late night drive through at Wendy's. You're thinking scripture and it satisfies your soul. It's an incredible thing. So feed your mind and feed it all day and consider all of it. Number two, I must free my mind from destructive thoughts. Now, some of you, you're like, wow. Joe, did you just come up with that on your own? I must. I must. So here we've got these imperatives. Where's the indicatives? How are you supposed to achieve these imperatives apart from the indicatives, apart from the good news that we are in Christ, that we are forgiven, our sins are bled and died for? Yeah, see, this, again, this is imperative. This is law. Now, here's the funny thing. The things that he's saying are not bad in and of themselves, but approached from the idea kind of tacitly at this point that my right standing before God is based is going to be based in part on how well I achieve these things or do these things. You are setting yourself up for literally the rat wheel of works righteousness and you'll never know whether or not you have a good standing before God. We've got a real problem here. Preaching imperatives apart from indicatives leads people into a, a false belief that they have to do these things in order to maintain and kind of renegotiate their standing before God. This is a big problem. I got it from the theologians known as In Vogue, where they sang that song. I said, free your mind and the rest will follow. Now, some of you are like, man, I know that song, right? How many of you can't get that song out of your head right now? How many of you know I can't sing? Yeah, right? Okay. But here's the thing. If you free your mind, the rest will follow. Where your mind goes, that's where the rest of you goes. Notice, I must free my mind. Rather than I have been set free by Christ and now have been set free to walk in that freedom. Subtle difference, but it makes the difference of the whole world. And so I need to free my mind from destructive thoughts. We all have them. We all have things in our mind that, that are destructive. We have things that build us up and things that tear us down. Um, in fact, I would say that if you wake up in the morning and you're not facing Satan head on, you may already be going in the direction he wants you to go. Um, Romans 8, 5 says this, those who are dominated by their sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. And how can you be filled with the Spirit apart from faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? It's a matter of what you're going to give into. If you choose early on, you have this thought that pops in your mind and you're like, man, am I going to, am I going to dwell on that? Or am I going to dwell on the things that God wants me to dwell on? You know, I, I have this conversation quite often with people. They'll say, Joe, do you, do you think that, that Satan can control me? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And they're like, well, you know, I feel like Satan made me do it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Satan can't make you do anything. But I do think that Satan can put things in your mind. You know, you ever have that moment where you're just kind of doing your everyday thing and then you have some thought and you're like, 
man, that is weird. I can't believe, I don't even know where that came from. And if people could read my mind, like they would have to put a serious rating on this thing. All right. Ever had that happen? Yeah. It's a little scary. It's like, well, where's that come from? See, I believe that, 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 that Satan can put things in our mind. God can put things in our mind. I think there's three areas or three ways that thoughts come into our mind. The first way is when Satan gives us a thought, it's called temptation. Okay. It's called temptation. He puts a thought in her mind. We kind of dwell on it, think about it, nibble on it, but, but he can't make us choose that. It's something we choose on our own where he might be able to influence your thoughts. He cannot influence your choices. That's up to you and me and God. He doesn't influence our choices either. He gives us free will so that you and I can choose to follow him so that he knows that we love him. Yeah, that reeks of the Pelagian heresy. We have a choice, there would be no love, and God wouldn't really know if our heart was in it, and we wouldn't know if God really loved us if he didn't give us the opportunity to make a choice. So, so whenever we get our thoughts from Satan, it's called temptation. When we, give, we get divine thoughts from God, it's called inspiration. You ever have those moments? It's like, man, God really gave me a great idea today. That's incredible. I, I never would have come up with that all on my own. Uh, inspiration, good thoughts, okay. Must have been from God. But you know, whenever, whenever we come up with thoughts on ourselves, that's called stupidity, right? <laughs> Where did that thought come from? Why did I think it was a good idea to put a whole egg in a microwave for four minutes? You know, <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. Like, that's crazy, you know, but we do it. And, and so, so if we're going to deal with it, and if we're at war with our thoughts, then we need to understand how we can deal with it, okay? And, and it's kind of like the, the next verse I'm going to read is 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. And I call this the G.I. Joe verse, right? G.I. Joe, knowing is half the battle. If you- yeah, let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 10. Yeah, 3 through 5 is what he's going to look at. And I want to point something out here. And the idea is, is that uh, in hermeneutics, we've got to talk about reference. You know, what's the referent in this text? So I'm going to start at verse 1 so we get our context. Remember, our three rules for sound biblical exegesis, context, context, context. And so far, Joe has been ripping verses out of context so that he's literally cut out of the context of the passages he's read, the indicatives. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That indicative got torn out, and he's, he's looked at portions of chapter 5 and just said you need to have the Holy Spirit, but doesn't even make the connection on the connection between how the Spirit operates in those who are in Christ. <sighs> By grace alone, through faith alone. But let's take a look now at the context of 2 Corinthians 10. I want to point this out because I've seen this passage used by, you know, the way Joe Boyd is going to use it here many times in my life. And let's see if that's what really this is all about. Here's what he says. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, 
being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So here's the idea. Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Is that referring to strongholds within our own lives? You know, you know, sin holding out in portions of our life? Well, he says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So notice, he's saying he's going to have to show boldness to some, and he's going to use divine power to destroy arguments and opinions raised against the knowledge of God and take thought every, every thought captive to obey Christ, and he's ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So here's the idea. He calls this the G.I. Joe passage. But in a very real sense, this passage is talking about those who are speaking contrary to Christ, raising arguments against the knowledge of Christ. And in this particular case, he's talking about some people in the church in Corinth who were accusing and suspecting the Apostle Paul of walking according to the flesh when he wasn't. That's not what he was doing. So he's going to, you know, you get what I'm saying here. So it's funny when you take a look at what's going on with this passage in context, the way Joe is about to use it, that's not exactly the right way to use it. If you understand what you're up against, then you can prepare for it. All right. And so here's what the scripture says. It says, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. And the weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. Our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. I want to stop right there. Everybody say strongholds. You need to keep reading, Joe. Here's what a stronghold is. A stronghold is whenever you believe a lie. It's a lie that you believe. And then it becomes ingrained and you think it's the truth. And so you believe it and you repeat it and dwell on it. And it, it becomes your natural behavior. It becomes the way that I am. And you just do it and you justify it. Like, for instance, some people in this room believe that God doesn't love them. But that is simply just not true. God loves you. He's always loved you. He's pursued you. He loves you so much that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us so much, he gave up his only son for us. Okay, now that's the gospel. That's not a gospel nugget. That's an actual, you know, he made that a main point. So here we've heard the gospel. It's true. God loves you, and he demonstrates his love by dying for your sins. So we, he, he's got the gospel here. So there it is. God is not mad at you. He's mad about you. Yeah, Rick Warren's famous slogan, and he's not quite making the connection here how faith is the thing that clings to that promise. And that's the truth. You know, another one is people say, well, nobody understands what's going to make me happy except me. And, and what they're really saying is including God. And that's, yeah, again, the text says, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We, and he goes on to explain, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. In some sense, this is talking externally within the church, people who are opposing the word. He's using it existentially, but that's really kind of not the gist of this passage. Simply not true as well. Because our God is a creator. 
He's, he's, our, he's our father. He, he created us in his image. He loves us. He defined our purpose in advance. But you know, the thing is, the Bible tells us that Satan... Defined our purpose. ...schemes for us. God has plans for us. They're, they're putting these thoughts out there, but we have choices to make. God loves us. God cares about us. And he knows what will ultimately make us happy and fulfilled and, and feel like we have a life of purpose. But when we try to do it all ourselves, we keep messing things up. Like these ideas that you're going to find the answer. So apparently strongholds are the things that keep you from achieving your purpose. Wow. From within? No, you're not going to find the answers from within. Because, because you found all the wrong things that got you in the jam that you're in from within. It's from above, that God-sized view that he shows us the way out. And he leads us to a better place. We continue, it says, we demolish any argument and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So we have to test these crazy thoughts we have in our head to ask, is this from God or not? Is it the truth or not? You know, like people will say, oh, well, you're ugly. Well, the Bible says that you are created in God's image and God's not ugly. God created you to be unique and powerful and be a victor. And, and we need to understand our picture of who we are. Wow, sounds kind of like a light version of the word of faith heresy. Based on what the Bible says, what God says, what the truth says, and not by the advertising, not by the lies, not by the mean things that were said out of hurt and anger to you, as you when you were a child. God wants to set you free from that. And, and in fact, he goes on to say, and we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. See, we need to take it captive and we need it to obey the truth. It either has room in your life or it doesn't. What we think will determine a lot about what we will do. And we got to make the right... Yeah, now let me read a a commentary on this. I was just looking at uh, Paul Kretzman's commentary on 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and the opening verses. And uh, here's what he said in, you know, what Paul Kretzman comment, commenting on this idea of taking every thought captive and warfare and all that kind of stuff. Here's what he says. While Titus had brought encouraging news from Corinth with regard to the case of church discipline and continued willingness of the Corinthian Christians to take part in the collection uh, for the poor at Jerusalem, his report was less favorable insofar as it represented the Judaizing teachers. This is, by the way, Second Corinthians 10 is where Paul begins to make the change in Second Corinthians to begin to address the super apostles, uh-huh, which we read about earlier today. Um, so, um, you know, the, the, uh, the Judaizing teachers, these are the opponents of Paul, still dangerously active. We find, therefore, that the tone of the apostles' discourse is decidedly altered in this last section of his letter. While his devotion to the Corinthian congregation is still apparent, he finds himself compelled to resort to stern commands, not unmixed with irony and sarcasm, while he still shows the tendency to deal tenderly with the members of the congregation. He is determined to use all the severity against those that attacked his authority. In It is an urgent appeal which Paul addresses the, uh, to the Corinthians. I, myself, Paul, entreat you by the humility and gentleness of Christ. He places his person in the foreground, and deliberately so. He makes the authority which he has received the issue for which he is contending. Therefore, he drops the plural number in which he commonly included also his fellow workers and places himself singly in opposition to these false teachers. He still entreats or beseeches 
though he might well have commanded, and he does so by the meekness or humility and by the gentleness or lenity of Christ, the Spirit of Christ, which was which was always benign and gentle, slow to anger and eager to forgive, lived in the apostle and actuated him in this trying situation. With some tinge of sarcasm, he includes the saying which the the opponents had spread concerning him, who indeed before your face am humble among you, but at being absent and daring towards you. That was the sneering speech to which the Corinthians had given ear since his personal enemies had construed the weakness with which he came to Corinth as cowardness as a lack of confidence and courage. So Paul repeats his appeal, I beg you, lest I begin... I, I, being present, show daring courage and with confidence with which I am minded to be bold against some that think of us as though we walked according to the flesh. So Paul here talking about demolishing strongholds, the referent is the strong, you know, the strongholds and the lofty opinions raised against Christ that are being brought to the Corinthian church by the Judaizing super apostles. That's what's going on here. So by using the word beg or pray, the apostle here indicates his growing earnestness. He pleads with them to consider well their course of thinking and acting. For if they continue to listen to the detractors of his good name, nothing will be left for him to do but show courage and severity in dealing with the situation on the basis of that confidence which seems required under the circumstances. He will find himself compelled to be resolute to step forth boldly against certain men in their midst. These men he characterizes as calumnators, since they intimated in giving their opinion of Paul and other true teachers that Paul's behavior and course of conduct was not governed solely by spiritual considerations, but that weakness, fear of men, the desire to remain in the good graces of all men, and other carnal motives were were the ruling factors. Paul's answers to these insinuations is brief but emphatic. For though walking in the flesh, yet we do not wage war according to the flesh. Paul was indeed living here on earth in the body of his weak flesh with all sinful infirmities with which this instrument is obliged to battle always. But his conduct as apostle is not according to the dictates of a weak and sinful nature. And what is more, although he does indeed engage in a warfare, his whole ministry in its numerous conflicts with the various hostile powers being a battle against evil... Yet he is not governed by fleshly considerations as his enemies intimate, being themselves animated by them. The situation rather is this, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but powerful through God for the destroying of fortifications. This is added by way of parenthesis to explain the fact of waging war in the spiritual warfare, which must be carried on by the church of Christ and by every believer not only actual physical, political powers excluded, but incidentally every weapon which trusts in mere human ability, intellect, and power, and is actuated by any carnal motive, the love of honor, of riches, of influence, and others, such weapons the Church of Christ and the individual preacher will never make use of. They do not belong to the armor of the soldiers of Christ, Our instruments of warfare are rather such as receive their extraordinary power from God through his almighty strength. 
with these weapons among which the word of God stands first as our armor, all the fortifications and strongholds of the adversaries, especially those that are intended to obstruct the progress of God's cause and the work of salvation, they are overthrown and utterly destroyed, such as heathen idolatry, Pharisaic self-righteousness and hypocrisy, Greek pride of wisdom, Rome's many heresies, and the host of modern enemies of biblical truth. So you'll notice here, even Paul Kretzmann notes the fact that this text is not really talking about some existential internal stronghold within your life. He's really talking about those strongholds uh, where people are working against the preaching of the gospel and the advancing of the kingdom of Christ and the lofty opinions are, that are raised against the true knowledge of God. That's what's being referred to in this text. So, yeah, unfortunately, Joe Boyd, like so many people, really think this is about, oh, you know, positively thinking in such a way as order to tear down the strongholds of sin in your life. Again, that's really not what this text is about right choices we've got to quit thinking um you know like with our emotions and start thinking biblically but if we're going to do that we need to understand how things work how many of you like those shows on television that show you how things work man i love those shows i'm always inspired like i love watching things like oh that's how a toilet works i didn't know that oh that's how airplanes get up off the ground whenever they weigh so much it doesn't make sense i love those types of shows but you know what i love even more than that i love understanding how to avoid trouble and so i want to help you understand how temptation works okay this is how it works james chapter 1 verses 14 through 15 give us the picture of what temptation really is It says temptation comes from the lure, okay? The lure. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't take the bait. Comes from the lure of our own evil desires. These evil desires lead to evil actions, and then the evil actions lead to death. It gives us a picture that that we have desires in our heart. We give into them. When we give into them, it leads to action, and that action leads to a consequence. How many of you in here are fishers? How many of you have ever been fishing? Okay, good. Lots of people have been, but a few of you would call yourself fishers. I grew up in, in a home where I was taught to be a fisherman. My dad loves to fish. I mean, we had the boat. We had multiple boats over the years. My dad had the depth finders. He had the fish finders. He had the, the color checkers. We had jigs and we had poles and we had rods. We had it all. We had nets. We were ready to go. We had the live well with the bilge pump, the whole nine yards. We love to go fishing. Now, the interesting thing is, is that whenever you go fishing, um, you, you, you're trying to attract fish to their natural tendency and desire to want to eat. How many of you have a desire to eat from time to time? Oh, good. We got maximum participation. Fish are very much like us. They like to eat, but they don't have a BK. You know, they don't have a drive through for fish. And, and so what happens is you put like little sparkly, shiny things on there and you cast them out and you reel in and it goes by a fish and it's like, and that fish is like, I was kind of hungry. What is that? And it looks like a snack. You throw it out there again and man, they start to get interested and they swim up there like, and they take hold. They bite that thing, hook, line, and 
sinker, right? And you reel them in. And man, not one fish woke up in the morning and said, you know, I think I want to leave this comfortable environment where I'm alive and well and enter into a frying pan. And I mean, not one of them. They don't ever think that. And you know what? You and I don't think that either. But we get caught up in the trap. Okay, so let me walk you through the steps of how temptation works. And more specifically, I'm going to I'm going to show you how it works through the original temptation, the original sin um, of Adam and Eve. Okay, God creates Adam. He's in the garden. Everything's good. He sees that he's alone. He creates Eve. You know, now this is interesting. He went from kind of initially talking about hurts, habits, hang ups and, you know, things like that to now he's talking about temptation to sin. So he's kind of eased into the biblical categories, which, by the way, I give him credit for doing that. You know, Adam goes, whoa, man, and woman was appeared, right? And it was good. And they were told, you can, you can do anything you want, just don't eat from this one tree. One temptation, one thing of temptation. There has never been a time in history with less temptation than that moment. We have more things tempting us now than ever before. And, 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 and I don't even know how they messed it up. I mean, it was like they were naked. They didn't have any kids. Seriously, how do you mess that up? How do you mess that up? Unbelievable. They start seeing this fruit. They're like, oh, it's beautiful. The first one is desire. We all have desire. We want to give in. We, want, we, we desire to, to have people that we shouldn't be with. We desire to, to, to appetites to have things we shouldn't consume. We, we have desires to make money. We get caught up in materialism and status, and, and we pursue all these things. We have desires, and, and those are God-given desires as long as we don't take them too far and make them our God. But the second step is we have doubt. We begin to doubt. And, and, and the, the snake comes and says, did God really say don't do this? You know, I, I noticed that we become like, like legal eagles when it comes to doubt. We start, we start looking for loopholes. Well, you know, I know, I know they said that we couldn't do this, you know, but they didn't say we couldn't do it after work. And they didn't say we couldn't do it after 7 o'clock. You know, and, and we make all these justifications, and we, we, we start looking for the loopholes, and we miss the truth, which is right in front of us. And so that doubt creeps in. And then when doubt creeps in, step three kicks in, and we have deception. And deception is where strongholds get formed. We believe a lie of Satan. Like we bought, they bit into it. And in that moment, sin enters in the world and separation from God and it creates all problems. And if you don't like going to work and you don't like bearing children, it's because somebody fell for temptation. And, and it's terrible that it happened. And when that happens, we go hook, line, and sinker. We, we nibbled at it and we nibbled at it and we thought, I'll never get caught. But the problem is when you start nibbling at it, it's not if you're going to get the hook, it's when you're going to get the hook. And that leads to the fourth step of disobedience and defeat. When we disobey God, we get separated from God and we feel defeated and overwhelmed. And I, I can tell you, there's only one answer. Before you fall for the temptation, make a decision today up front. Psalm 119, 112 says, I have made up my mind to obey your laws forever, no matter what. If you choose to obey God, you won't get caught in the trap. Uh, actually, what he's saying is actually kind of the trap. And what I mean by that is this, is you're talking about raw, naked obedience apart from faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. 
And what this sets people up for, again, is this idea that my standing before God, Coram Deo, is somehow contingent upon or based upon my obedience in, you know, in keeping second table of the law, Coram Mundo. Yikes, we've got a big problem here. Many of us get caught in the trap. And so I want to finish off with point number three. I must focus my mind on the right things. Have you ever noticed that you can have a pair of binoculars and look at something and it's... Yeah, so just focus your mind on the right things and you'll you'll be able to obey God no matter what. See, that's the problem. Yeah, you, you determine, I'm going to obey God no matter what. How long is that going to last before you have to say, Lord, I've blown it? Mm-hmm. Again, this is, this is setting people on the wrong course because this is sanctification without a proper understanding of how it works in accord with justification. Imperative and indicative work together. We're getting a lot of imperatives, no indicatives. And it's because it's out of focus. But you can focus it and everything looks clear, but then you have to position the direction you look because you can be in focus and not be on the right thing. You need to focus on the right things. And I believe the first thing we need to focus on is think about Jesus. We need to think about Jesus. This idea of what would Jesus do is not a new idea to Kansas. In fact, it Oh, man. Yeah, what would Jesus do? I, I hate to say this. This is, a, this is a formula for self-destruction. Because the, the good news is what Jesus did and what he did for us. And yes, there is a, a way and an aspect of Christ being an imitate somebody we should imitate, but we've got a big problem because Christ has told us to pray every day, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And here, Joe Boyd is you know, preaching on the just make make up your mind to obey God no matter what. This is not Christian sanctification. This is literally a formula for self-destruction. Came out of Kansas. There was a pastor uh, named Pastor Shelton that did a series of sermons that led to a book called In His Steps. And he was from Topeka, Kansas. And in 1886, he started this phrase, what would Jesus do? It's a phrase that has been used all over the world. But somehow, even though it started in Kansas, we've lost our way and we quit focusing on what mattered most. And we need to get back to that and focus on the thing that really matters. We need to think about Jesus. That's why 2 Timothy 2.8 says, keep your mind on on Jesus Christ. Because what you focus on is what you dwell on. What you dwell on is what you become. And it says, therefore, in Hebrews 12, 3, think about Jesus' example. He held on while evil, wicked, wicked people were doing evil things to him. So do not get tired and stop trying. We need to continue to pursue and be like... All imperatives without the indicatives. You can't qu quote Romans 12 apart from all of the good stuff going on in Romans 11. By faith, the people did what they did. Ay, ay, ay. Jesus. We need to do the things like Jesus. We need to follow his example. Because I can tell you, in this world, we don't need more people who call themselves Christians. We need more people who follow the example of Christ. Because people need to see that example. Our kids need to see that example. And the world needs to see the love of Christ. Not just people talking about labels. It's the truth. 
Two, we need to think about others. Like I could tell you at age 40, the things I'm thinking about, I'm not thinking about me. I'm thinking about my decisions and how they impact other people. I think about getting up in the morning and working out. I think about what I read and I think about what I choose to watch or not watch. And I ask my question, the question, me watching, doing, or thinking about these things, how does that impact my wife? How does that impact my son? How does that impact my future? How does that impact my relationship and the people in our church and where we're going? We need to focus on others. That's why it says in Philippians 2.4, don't just think about your own affairs, but be interested in others too and in what they are doing. To take it a step further, Hebrews... T- Again, all imperatives without any good... Well, I mean, we got one indicative. Christ died for our sins, but I mean, that even that was in the context of taking thoughts captive kind of thing. Wow. Four, let us think about each other and help each other to show love and do good deeds. If you want to avoid sin in your life, think about other people. Sin begins when you focus on yourself. But when you focus on other people, which is what Jesus did, following that example, it takes the emphasis off of us and most likely leads to living a sinless life. It's So you want to lead a sinless life? Just learn to think about others and not yourself and... <laughs> You're going to live a sinless life. Now, notice, in order to make a statement like that, oh, you're going to you're going to be able to lead a sinless life. That what he's really done is not really understand at all what God's law demands. He's cheapened God's law to such a point that he really believes. Oh, just think about others, and you're just going to do things, and you will, you'll lead a sinless life. Oh man, he is setting people up for major failure here about where we focus and then the last point is this we need to think about eternity i mean life is like that it's over but eternity is forever and we're all going to spend somewhere forever we're either going to spend it with god or we're going to spend it separated from god and i want people to i want heaven to be a crowded place Uh, and then you're going to talk about how christ bled and died for us and salvation is totally a free gift not based upon how well we get this, right? I don't want hell to be a place that's full because I want people to know Jesus. It says in Colossians 3, 2, it says, let heaven fill your thoughts. Do not think only about things down here on earth. You ever heard that old saying, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly? Good, right? You've heard that. But see, I think that's just a lie. Because the people who are heavenly minded are the ones that are doing the earthly good. The ones that are doing the will of God are doing what God said. Like Jesus taught the disciples to pray, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to be heavenly minded. And it's when we're so earthly minded, then we're no heavenly good because it's about us. It's not about us. The truth of the matter is, we don't even realize how good it's going to be because our mind cannot contain all the good things that God wants to do. When you look at 1 Corinthians 2.9, it says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We can't even imagine. In fact, we all have a story, a story where we've given in to temptation, We have a story where we've uh, aspired to inspiration from God. And every one of us have a story to tell. But right now, I want you to take a moment, and and I want you to hear a story from a good friend of ours. She's married to our student pastor, and she's got a story about how God freed her mind. Take a look. 
I, I went to college. I went to Hutchinson Community College on an art scholarship and a dance scholarship. And so I went out there and um, was living in an apartment with a couple of roommates. And I just was living up the college experience. I had fun. I went out. I was drinking and partying all the time and um, just smoking marijuana. I was getting in all kinds of trouble. Um, I was in a really bad relationship at the time. Um, I really lost myself. Like I grew up in a Christian home. I knew better than all the things that I was doing. And it kind of becomes a blur because I know I was, I was hospitalized twice actually for, um, for anxiety or depression or bipolar, whatever you want to call it. What I do remember is it just feeling like a very dark and sad, hopeless place. I was angry. Again, I can, I think I can even say that I was angry with God that, that I would be put in a place like that. It was like my relationship with God was at a complete standstill. Like I just, I can't, I can't just keep going on like this, like thinking that nothing happened and that I can just do things my own way. Um, and so after that point, I remember like, a f I mean, I was like so broken. I, was, I remember I was like crying, bawling. And then I, at that moment, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this for real. Like, I'm going to accept Christ and I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to do this. I just. Notice the emphasis. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. She's trying to save herself. It took a while. It took a while to feel like I fit back in. Looking back, like I never would have thought, like three years ago, I would have, if someone would have told me, oh, you're going to um, marry a youth pastor and become involved in his ministry and have a family and all that, I would have just laughed really like I would have been like you don't know me you don't know where I've been there's no way like absolutely not but we weren't made to be dependent on drugs we were made to be dependent on Christ like and I think people forget that God really has transformed my life Guys, we have some of the most incredible people. These are all testimonies that come from within our church. And, and my hope is that, that when you're watching these, you'll go, man, that's my story. Me too. I'm going through that. And, and I hope that you can connect with another person. Please, you can never get the full story in these little snippets, but they do reveal the truth. That God can change your mind and it can change your life if you will just let him. You know, early on, I told you that, that people looked at me like I was crazy because I was wearing a tuxedo in McDonald's, but I was dressing for the wedding. And, and, and today, I believe that a call to, to live for Christ means you're going to live countercultural. You're not going to live like everyone else. You're not going to make the same decisions as everyone else. You're not going to think like everyone else because you're going to be changed by the mind of Christ. He says, have the mind of Christ. And the way you do that is inviting Christ into your life. Because he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And if you welcome him into your, to your life, it will begin to change the way you think. It'll change the way you see. It'll change the way you act. And then you'll start to find purpose and meaning in your life. But the truth is, the thing that separates us is our selfishness and our sin. And, and when we do it our own way, we kind of mess things up. 
There's no person in this room that hasn't done that, and we all have to admit that. Okay, so we're, it sounds like we're getting ready to hear some indicatives. Whenever we admit it, God is quick to turn to us and say, here I am, receive me into your life. He wants to not really in and give you a new opportunity. He wants to change your mind. He wants to- God wants to give you a new opportunity. Don't mess it up this time. Do your mind and make you a new creation. You, you come here as friends, but you can leave here as family. And God says, follow me. Follow his example and be transformed. Today, I want to invite you to begin your life with God. See, spiritual life is, is a journey. It shouldn't be a guilt trip. This isn't about guilt. This is about freeing your mind and experiencing the life you've always desired. And so I'm going to ask that everyone will bow their heads. And everyone- okay, done. Um, very subtle, because many of the things that he said to do are actually good things to do. The problem is, is that it's done with this idea that somehow, and it's notice it's kind of stated tacitly that this is uh, this is something I've got to do in order to get things right with God. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to, and then I've got to keep doing these things. And then this idea, oh yeah, just set your mind on these things, and you you can be sinless. This is not Christian sanctification. This is what it means to be under the kind of preaching where you don't hear an absolution. And the reality is, is all the things that he's talked about as sins, which he eventually got to that point, yeah, they need to be discussed. The solution for that needs to be repentance and being forgiven and hearing an absolution and bearing fruit in keeping with that repentance, imperative, indicative, working together, forgiveness, and a right standing before God then flowing into our relationships, active and passive righteousness working together. Now, these may be complicated ideas that I've put forward, but we'll flesh these out in the days ahead here on Fighting for the Faith. What did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.